Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. We talk staff mental health, accessing Oxford, degree classifications and the weight of first-year students. It's all coming up. What, we, what I think we're taking off the table, really, is, is, is scrapping the honour system. This, this, was, this has been mooted now for years and years and years and years. Even in more politically friendly times, um, people were worried that the, the honour system was not fit for purpose and have been trying other things like, like GPA. Um, but there isn't now... I think... I think- Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I am Rachel Firth and this week, in a break from tradition, we are recording this all together in the same room at Wonky HQ. So here to windsurf across the choppy lake of higher education policy, as usual we have three fabulous guests. So around the table we have Justin Andrew, Market Director for KPMG's Education Skills and Productivity Team and a Board Member at Leeds Trinity. Justin, give us your highlight of the week, please. Well, Rachel, good morning. Obviously, working for KPMG is a smorgasbord of highlights. Um, but for me, saying goodbye to my 13-year-old this morning as she set off on a 28-hour bus journey to the south of France with her school was a highlight. Not because I want to get rid of her, but because she's been so excited all week. It has been rather infectious. We have to say, say a prayer for those teachers who are on that bus with them, quite frankly. Uh, <laughs> and we have Vice President Higher Education at NUS, Amate Doku. Amate, give us your highlight of the week, please. Um, so I was very privileged last night to go to um, Hertfordshire University for their um, student teaching awards, um, which was a really nice experience, a good celebration of teaching and obviously um, some very good food as well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It's always about the buffet. Um, and finally, we have Wonky's founder and editor-in-chief, Mark Leach. Mark, give us your highlight of this week, please. Uh, hi, Rachel. I think my, my highlight so far um, has been the, the kind of political meltdown in, in Westminster. Um, it's, it's less of a highlight, more of a kind of like watching a slow-moving car crash. Um, but obviously, for, for us, uh, expecting the Augur review very imminently um there the speculations just reached kind of absolute fever pitch um and so so pretty much everyone i know in the sector is, is kind of watching every single twist and turn uh, and it feels like the stakes are even higher than usual for for us as a, as a sector uh, in this in this 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 week's political meltdown <laughs> this week's political meltdown do keep your eyes on wonky.com for all org related news Right, this week we start with a new HEPI report on staff mental health by Dr Liz Morish, which includes new data obtained from 59 universities. Mark, can you tell us more on this report, please? Yeah, this is a report out by HEPI this week. Um, uh, some really interesting research uh, that shows, um, I, I, guess, I guess what it really highlights is um, the, the general state of, um, of mental health um, across the, the, the kind of academic workforce and the kind of university workforce. Um, which is quite timely. A lot of people are concerned about 
changing models, um, so kind of workload models, um, short-term contracts, um, issues of job security uh, and its impact on, um, I guess, what it's like to work in a university today. Um, and we, we hear this a lot from, from different places that we go on our travels in the sector that morale is quite low. Um, the many, many, many universities of different size and strength are facing uh, very, very tough economic conditions, making cuts, changing those models, um, asking more of their staff. Um, and the jobs that um, a lot of people thought they were going to be doing, particularly coming into academia um, over the last couple of decades, have changed almost beyond recognition. Um, and that's leading to uh, you know, a real crunch on things like occupational health. So uh, we, we've seen in one institution an increase in referrals to occupational health up by 424% since 2009. Uh, another massive number, um, a university recorded a rise in referrals to counselling of over 300% in the same period. Um, and I think that uh, obviously the picture will be different at different universities, but it is, uh, it does say, I think, um, quite a lot about the, the general state of what it's like to, to work in university today. And um, I think it's quite timely uh, to be published this week. Also, just one more thing to say in that, in that HEPI often, often gets a lot of flack um, for not being very interested in, in kind of staff concerns. Um, and, and they often come under fire for focusing on, um, I guess, kind of more you know, policy issues and things, things that are slightly removed from the, from the kind of university experience. So I think there's obviously an attempt to rebalance that. Uh, and, and I think we'll be welcomed by everyone who's uh, rightly concerned with these issues. Thank you so much for, for that um, kind of broad setting the scene, Mark. Justin, what was your take on this? You had a, a look through this report. Yes, I suppose a couple of things strike me. I think the first one is that, look, any message around mental health, mental health awareness is really welcome, isn't it? And the more we can do to raise awareness of this generally, it's, it's the big issue of our time. It's a societal issue. So, you know, we see it at, at KPMG. We see it, um, you know, I see it in friends. I see it in family. It's you know, you throw a stick in, you can hit someone who's been impacted by this. So it's, it's, it's a societal issue. I was a bit perturbed, I think, the implication that, that, that people can't speak out um, because I think you need role models, you need people to be standing up and saying it's affected them to make it normal. Um, at KPMG last week, we had the This Is Me campaign for Mental Health Awareness Week where we had lots of people telling their stories and that's very powerful in terms of not normalising it but, but but making people feel able they can speak out. So that, that was one of the things that struck me. I would say, is this, a, um, an, is this possibly an example of the sector actually getting better in the sense that more people feel more comfortable to um, ask for help and report help or do you think there is an actual uh, crisis out there of, 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 of morale and staff wellbeing? Well, I think it's definitely a combination um, of the two. I think think um, there has obviously been a lot of focus on student mental health in the press and that's been widely reported um, much less so on staff um, but clearly um, behind the scenes there's a significant problem there um, I would say that uh, you know that there, there clearly will be a link between the two um, if you have academics who are stretched if, who, who can't um, uh, who, who aren't sort of in a, in a good place to support students as well um, it's going to have an effect on the students um, I think there are clearly broader um, issues mentioned in, in the report about the link between metrics and targets and, and the impact that's having on staff stress and, and, and workload and the rest of it. And sort of an interesting idea would be for, for future policy uh, makers and, and sort of initiatives to do a sort of impact assessment on the impact that new measures or new targets or new policies would have, um, not just sort of in isolation, um, but actually taking them together, taking all the metrics and current um, uh, requirements for staff together um, and see what impact that will have on their um, uh, mental health and clearly you know funding is going to be 
a major issue here. Um, whatever we think is going to come out or not come out of any reviews, um, is, you're unlikely to see sort of any real terms increase in funding going into universities. And what's that going to mean in terms of this picture? It's, it's hard to see how, um, without uh, more support for staff, um, it's hard to see how this issue is going to be solved. I, th- I think the, there's been a lot of talk about a kind of well-being um, league table or some kind of um, some kind of measure that, that helps us understand what's going on inside um, universities. I think that uh, on the one hand, more data is definitely a good thing. Um, on the other hand, um, it's, it's kind of how it's used. And what, what you want to do is incentivize universities to take care of their staff and students better, basically. You want to provide a better student experience. You want staff not to feel so stressed and overmeasured and, uh, you know, such demands that, um, you know, they're heading into kind of crisis territory. Um, uh, I guess the risk of, of any kind of, uh, of any kind of lead table is that, um, you know, it, it ends up as, as kind of another another stat to be gained, gamed rather. So um, you kind of hope in this day and age that universities would look at their responsibilities here in, in the round, rather than in terms of its kind of in terms of kind of reporting or compliance duty or, uh, or or the kind of the PR, which which is what what kind of stats might uh, what some of the stats might might give us. Um, but I think that what this definitely speaks to is a big big shift in. Um, what it's like to work in a, in a university. And um, I think that the sector hasn't collectively got its head around what that means in terms of how we attract um, p- people into a pipeline in, term, in, in academia, um, how we take people through and, and how we ensure that, um, I guess, the future of, of the workforce is, is secured. At the moment, it's not looking like a particularly attractive place to come and work from the outside. Um, lots of Lots of long hours, pay isn't as good as good as it used to be uh, and and a lot of these jobs aren't very secure it's also they're also a lot harder to get than than they used to be um so uh, that i think there needs to be a bit of soul searching about academic careers in the sector it's actually good to see chris goodmore speak about this a couple, couple of weeks ago we haven't had a lot of ministerial attention on the, on this area um, but it's it's overdue. No, I was just going to say, picking up what you said in your introduction, Mark, about this sort of striking at the heart of some of the cultural issues that we're seeing at universities at the moment. And I think reading this from the outside, you know, I'm not an academic, I don't work in a university. It, it's very much from the academic perspective and comes a little bit polemic, perhaps. And it talks about collaborative leadership, but, but then lays the blame squarely at the feet of leadership and um, sometimes pushes aside professional services, for example. So I think it is looking at it holistically, collaboratively and working together. And this is, you know, the genie is out of the bottle on metrics, on performance, on we are, we can't turn that clock back. So it had us, how do people in universities work together to actually find a way through? I think, you know, please don't try and manage academics is not that, that's that, that ship sailed, I think. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, but in the in the context of the kind of the the, the metrics world uh, and the pressures, the financial pressures, the time pressures, and everything else, it's it's obvious that there's 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 a there's bigger thinking to be done at universities. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, my name is Susan Muller. I'm the Higher Education Project Director at Standalone Charity. Before joining Standalone. I was responsible for the Bottle UK quality mark for care leavers until it ended in 2015. A couple of months ago, Chris Skidmore outlined the government's expectation on universities to support more care leavers into higher education. But I'm not convinced that putting the onus on universities is really the solution. I feel that's putting the horse before the cart. 
Looked after children and young people often face substantial disruption to their education and emotional lives. So there needs to be a holistic approach with all agencies working together in a joined up way and they all need to be held to account. So maybe there should be a gold standard for all, not just for universities. Hi, my name is Julie Kelly and I'm head of the Student Centre at the University of Hertfordshire and responsibility for admissions. But I'm also seeing the UCAS application process through the eyes of my 17-year-old son. We've just booked six open days and while working out the logistics for our visits, I've realised just how expensive the trips will be. Now, my son is one of the lucky ones, but how would someone on a low income tackle this? Would they make their uni choices based on location? not visit the university before they apply, or would the financial barrier mean they simply don't apply at all? Now, I accept you can get a lot of information online, but it's no substitute for a visit. Would you really make such a substantial investment in time or money based on online reviews? So what can we do? I'd like to start a conversation about what individual universities can do through their access and participation plans, but also what changes could be made to the admissions process itself to try and reduce the open day burden and hopefully widen access. Next up, the University of Oxford has launched two initiatives aimed at boosting the proportion of students coming to Oxford from underrepresented backgrounds from 15% of the current UK intake up to 25%. So, Amate, can you tell us more about this, please? Sure. So, that's right. So, at present, um, 15% of Oxford undergraduates are from underrepresented backgrounds and they want to increase this to 25% over the next few years. Um, And to do that, they've launched two uh, initiatives. Opportunity Oxford and Foundation Oxford. So with Opportunity Oxford, that will offer pre-entry support that includes two weeks of residential provision for those students. Um, and they're looking to offer about 200 places for this. And then Foundation Oxford is a full year program for students who've experienced disadvantaged or are fairly, um, they'll have had a severely disrupted education. Um, and as ever, because it's Oxbridge, it's been widely covered um, in the media. Um, I think it's really interesting because I think it's a real change of tone from Oxford. Um, usually they're on the defensive on these issues. So you have an MP like David Lammy calling them out for something and then they're responding saying, you know, it's fine, it's not too bad. So clearly internally, um, somebody's made, made a decision that we need to sort of get on the front foot and, and take the initiative on widening participation. And interestingly, given the sort of more recent media context, they don't seem to have been put off by recent concerns raised by sort of private schools, um, most provocatively from the head of a, a school recently who suggested that middle class kids were being sort of persecuted by some of these measures. So I think it's um, an interesting time. It's clearly very, very topical. Um, I would say, though, that there is a lot of focus, um, and quite rightly, but there is a lot of focus on Oxbridge, but places like Durham, you know, Exeter, Bristol, Imperial have equally, if not worse, um, records in terms of the number of disadvantaged students that they are admitting. Um, so there, I think there'll be questions to ask about what they can do, what they can, uh, what we can sort of get them to do. Um, and secondly, there are plenty of universities that are sort of success stories when it comes to widening participation. So how can the sector learn from them uh, about how to um, increase um, the participation from um, students from backgrounds who traditionally wouldn't go to university? I think it's a, an interesting question that Oxford actually could learn from from those institutions as well. I, th- I thought it was I thought it was interesting. Um, I, I was in a um, post-92 institution yesterday um, who were um, uh, meet, meeting, meeting some senior leaders there who were so frustrated uh, at, at this because, um, I mean, because, I guess because, because night, night follows day, you know, Oxford um, or Cambridge is, is able to kind of stop traffic when it comes to um, the media. And 
I think that the the focus uh, this is and this has been the case now for decades. There's a kind of disproportionate focus on what happens at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, we're talking here about at, at most helping 250 students a year. But if you look at all the front page news, the amount of coverage uh, given to it in the press, um, you'd you'd think that this was going to be a huge game changer for social mobility in this country. But what it is is a great initiative that will help um, it, it slightly restore Oxford's very very shocking reputation uh, on on running participation, but come nowhere close actually to uh, balancing it in a way that's representative of of broader society. Um, so. Obviously, no one's going to not welcome it. But I, I guess the frustration in the other parts of the sector is, you know, well, we, we're actually helping every day, um, pro providing opportunities for people to come to university that would never have had it before. And that's basically, you know, 100% of our, of our student population. Um, uh, and we get no praise, thanks or, or press coverage. In fact, all the metrics and incentives are on us not to do that. Um, and we have uh, the least amount of money, support um, and, and political capital behind us to deliver that. Um, but of course, um, you know, this fits this fits a, a way of seeing the world, I think, which um, particularly you look, at the, you look at the press and you look at, you know, a particular certain section of, uh, of a conservative party um, uh, when they talk about social mobility, um, and it, 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 it's really clear to me when people talk about grammar schools as well. You know, if you just can help, you know, fifty people, um, you know, that looks, you know, that makes you feel kind of better about it. it kind of gives you a kind of warm, fuzzy, fuzzy feeling. Well, we've helped fifty people into greater educational opportunities, but it goes nowhere close to dealing with a much more threatening. Uh, question, which is about societal inequality and the structures uh, and barriers that face people um, throughout their lives, their education and their careers from from birth until death, um, and that would require quite a radical reshaping um, of of the world that we that we live in. Uh, and of course, that's a very that's a sort of threatening concept to the Times and the Telegraph um, and the Conservative Party. Um, so so the distraction is over. Um, let's you know. Let's help these 50, 50, 50 kids into Oxford, uh, and look at us. We're doing some social mobility for fifty people. Sorry, I keep coming back to that, but it does frustrate me. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting. I couldn't agree more with what Mark about actually being on board at Leeds Trinity University, which is absolutely a widening participation institution, and and the frustration felt there. You know, I was sat next to somebody um, at a dinner the other day from the corporate sector, and his opening gambit when I said what I did was, well, what are you going to do about all these second and third rate universities that are popping up all over? the place, which was the opening gamut that led to a very lively um, dinner exchange, as you can imagine. But it is that perception that um, there is a certain level of the right degree um, from Oxford, from Cambridge, from the Russell Group, etc. And, and, and it's linked to the, the, uh, the, what we're going to talk about later about degree classification. But we have to get over that. And when I, you know, I talked to them and I said, but it massively improves people's life chances. You know, 50% participation is not a bad thing. This is a good thing we should celebrate. Um, and it was, yeah, it's just interesting that perception is so embedded. I think a, a, a slightly different concern, actually, um, which I've just sort of considered after this conversation, is that um, what what will it do to um, the sort of everybody else who's involved in the admissions process outside these two schemes? And that's sort of my concern, that actually um, having you know been a student representative at Cambridge, I know that at least um, there is some pressure um, from um, sort of admissions students within universities to ensure that they don't take 100% of their intake from Eton so that, you know, if an admissions student returns that um, or an individual who's been in charge of admissions, they'll sort of get a pushback from that and say, actually, you need to have a, a more, more diverse intake. Um, 
But if you've got this scheme, then actually is there as much pressure for them to say, well, actually in, in other areas, um, people who aren't part of this program, well, actually, yeah, it's fine. We can take um, students from more privileged backgrounds because we've got this foundation pro program. We've got this um, opportunity program. So I think obviously this isn't going to help that many students. It's obviously welcome, but we absolutely need to make sure they need to make sure that it doesn't mean that they get lax with the the rest of the you know the the general admissions process and, and they sort of park all the widening participation to these two schemes great let's see who else has been blogging for us this week hello my name is michelle morgan and i'm a student experience specialist i'm currently associate professor and associate dean for the student experience at Bournemouth university my piece is entitled In Defence of the Conditional Unconditional Offer and it's a follow-up to my article published in August last year entitled The Meteoric Rise of the Unconditional Offer Across the Sector. Since September, debate has raged in the media about the morality of institutions who use the conditional unconditional offer. However, a lot of that debate has failed to take into account how admissions processes are undertaken within higher education institutions the complexity of the conditional, unconditional offer itself and where it has grown in use. Damien Hines has chosen the conditional, unconditional offer as his third intervention on higher education, arguing that conditional, unconditional offers count as pressure selling. In my piece, though, I defend the concept of the conditional, unconditional offer, providing clear examples of why it should not be abandoned, why marketing-driven admissions processes need to be revisited and why more contextual-based offers should be made. Next up, we talk about degree classifications. But before we get into that, I want to tell you about our new Wonky Plus subscription, giving you and your team even more essential HE policy insight and access to extra wonky benefits. Along with the Wonky Daily delivered to your inbox at 8am every day, you'll get access to the termly Wonky Briefing, an horizon scan and sense check about everything happening in HE policy. Ideal for those that can't follow every twist and daily turn. And as a Plus subscriber, you get exclusive free access to our monthly event, Wonky Live, so you can keep up to date on all the moving and shaking in HE policy in person with Team Wonky and experts from across the sector. You also get free use of the Wonky Jobs Board, plus everyone from your organisation gets discounted rates on Wonky events and early access to tickets, including Wonkfest, which always sells out quickly. For more information, contact us on briefing at wonky.com, that's briefing at wonky.com, or you can visit the website wonky.com forward slash plus. Next, degree classifications. Uh, this is the news that the UK Standing Committee for Quality Assessment Agencies have signed up to a statement of intent on transparency, reliability and fairness around degree classifications. Justine, could you give us an overview of this one, please? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. So, as you said, it's rather snappily titled UK Standing Committee for Quality Assessment, UK's SQUAR. Um, have put out this uh, consultation analysis, uh, degree classification, transparent, consistent and fair academic standards. At its heart, it's this very fundamental premise of protecting the value of qualifications. Um, and it's an important consultation and picks up on some of the themes that we've touched on already um, earlier in this uh, podcast that's swirling around in higher education at the moment. The plans commit providers to holding an internal review of processes and publishing a degree outcome statement as a result. Uh, the principles were summarised by UUK, which are clear criteria, fair rules, transparent practices, consistent approaches and reliable assessment assessment, which is hard to argue against and indeed the sector on the basis of this consultation seems really broadly in favour. What's interesting is when you look at um, how it's been reported, again, it, the, the Times article talks about cracking down on grade inflation, dumbing down, tackling perceptions of first class degrees being easier to attain and you've really got to try and counter this and what it doesn't pick up on, interestingly, is um, 
is teaching quality and improvements in teaching quality. And um, I was at Leeds Trinity yesterday and I was talking to the DVC. I don't take any credit for this analogy, but I think it's a really interesting one. Um, the DVC teaching and learning, talking about sport. Now, if you look at the hour record for cycling, and bear with me on this, in 1876, so this, the, the distance you can cycle in an hour from a standing stop was 26 kilometres, right? In 2019, it was 55 kilometres. And that is all through incremental improvement. So, you know, the technology of the bike, the fitness, physiology, everything all adding up to, to, to improve that. But nobody goes, oh, well, it, it must be doping. It must be cheating. It must be fake. And we need to, we celebrate it really, the sporting side as a triumph of human effort, um, working alongside technology. And in universities, the, the flip side to this, and I think it is welcome, and we do need to protect the value of degrees, but the flip side is we also celebrate better teaching, student support, the improved technology, um, the support there is for staff. So all of these things should add up to better results ultimately. And so we need to get that balance right, I think. No, I, th I think um, I think what was really interesting for me on, on this committee, and this is actually one of the few committees um, in, I think actually one of the only committees um, that brings together all the funders in um, across the nations. Um, and in reality, this was one of the most complicated things, one of the most complicated things alongside the quality code that this committee had to, to, to grapple with. And I think it's, I'm not sort of giving anything away. There are no secrets that there are clearly different approaches um, in the nations to this, to lots of issues to do with quality, but this issue in particular. And I think one of the um, really interesting dynamics was where this was coming from. Where was the political impetus for dealing with this coming from? And it was very much felt that this was an England um, driven agenda and the uh, sort of, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland were sort of saying, well, we've kind of, this is fine. We don't really need to do very much about that. But I think the report has got the balance right in terms of taking into account the, the different contexts in the nations. Um, and I think a lot was done to make sure there was agreement from the different funders that this wouldn't really undermine what was going on elsewhere and would also keep the agenda um, to tackle this in, in England um, happy. But I think the, the point um, that was just raised, Justine, that Justine just raised, it was important that difference between grade inflation and grade improvement, and especially in the work, the work that kind of I've been involved in around the black attainment gap. It's kind of hard to see how um, you sort of square that because we want there to be great improvement for uh, disadvantaged groups um, and, and what does that look like if we achieve that um, presumably um, more people will be getting births and, and two one so um, how do you square that at a time when actually we are seeing some really interesting innovations in teaching and learning um, and, and I think there is an extent to which as long as you've explained that then you should be in a good place but that doesn't necessarily mean the sort of uh, headlines won't be created in that political drive to crack down on the number of firsts won't, won't still be there so I think it's a really uh, interesting um, tension I think the report broadly allows that flexibility to be there um, but I think it's not going to necessarily go away as an issue. Yeah, I, th I think I think the report does do a good job of balancing those issues, uh, but uh, but uh, it can't come anywhere close to countering that kind of ideological drive behind this this idea that uh, things are getting easier for young people essentially, and we see this across the education system. Um, as Justine rightly said, you know, progress in in uh, is is in in. in in degrees is not necessarily a bad thing uh, and actually um, as you point out Amity we, we want um, people to get better degrees um, because that shows they're getting better outcomes it shows uh, we're teaching them better it shows um, all kinds of good things um, so um, what disturbs me is that 
this is a story that it just basically never, is never going to go away. Um, and the sector, I think, is doing an admirable job of, of trying to grasp the nettle. But um, it really is such an easy headline that the Secretary of State can 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 get. You know, too many firsts. Universities universities need to crack down. Um, and I say it, this this is a problem across the, ed- the education system. I mean, and and across it, it, it kind of reminds me kind of its, of its sort of inter- intergenerational warfare issues we, we've seen over the last few years. Um, you know, we, we characterize students as snowflakes. Um, it's somehow, um, you know, the world is somehow kind of easier for them. Um, and, you know, obviously they don't have to work nearly as hard as we had to, which is, is obviously untrue. Uh, and, and the pressures on on this generation are, are, are many and complex and in, in lots of different ways. Um, so it, it feels to me this it feels to me like quite a pernicious agenda that's led us here, um, but I think the sector you know needs does need a response. Um, the other thing to say is that I, I guess what's also interesting for me is the fact that what we what I think we're taking off the table really is 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 scrapping the honour system. This this was this has been mooted now for years and years and years and years, even in more politically friendly times. Um, people were worried that the the honour system was not fit for purpose and have been trying other things like like GPA. Um, but there isn't now. I think I think the kind of real drive behind that has uh, has gone, um, and the and the improvements and the and the kind of reforms seem to be um, in more of the details as as this report points to. Um, but I wonder if that's a debate that that is going to come back again. I mean, these things can often be quite secular. I was going to say, I wonder whether another sort of consequences when we move forward in this, you're looking at value add for students and more widening participation. It's actually we'll see more thirds, and we should and we should celebrate that because somebody coming into university who would never normally get a degree and actually then getting a third and graduating is a really positive thing. So you're, you're, you're pushing everybody up, up the spectrum, really. And that's something I think might also drop out of this. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? More significant than any bold new deal. With concerns being raised about unconditional offers again, I wondered about the practice of admitting students to degree courses from sub-degree HE courses. Would providers offering large numbers of sub-degree courses make large numbers of offers with an unconditional component? Does it correlate? Possibly yes, because you will have had a year to assess them through your own quality uh, foundation year uh, teaching processes and everything. You will know which students are ready and will have put the support around them to um, progress. If you're taking them from other institutions, however, I think the answer would be different. I would say, I would probably say it was it, um, yes, but it probably on, on both, actually, because I think that, um, as, as Justine said, um, it's likely that uh, if you're if you're doing a sub-degree course at a university um, and you wanted to progress, the university will make that as easy as possible. You would have thought, thought that logically. Um, so I, I would suggest that it does correlate. Um, the um, if we're also talking about uh, recruiting uh, students on sub-degree courses from another university into a university, just for the sake of being different i'm going to um say that i don't think it correlates um it may, um, this might just be a definition of unconditional an unconditional component because actually quite a lot of um uh, access foundation courses um aren't necessarily unconditional but they are contextual in terms of their admission so they might have a lower um, um entry requirement this is one of the least convincing correlations we've seen so far R squared is just over 0.05. 
so it is clear there is absolutely no relationship between these data points at all. The graph is there to play with on the show page, and you can filter out providers who made no unconditional offers at all, although doing so only gets R squared up to 0.054. Data is from HESA's 2017-18 student release and the 2018 UCAS cycle. I've only included providers that feature in both datasets, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, an article in the conversation claimed that students can add four kilograms to their weight in the first year of university, which has raised questions as to what the role of university is in this. So, Mark, what are your thoughts on this weight gain story? Well, it, it kind of rings true as someone who spent their first year eating curly fries and drinking large amounts of beer and, and pretty much only eating and drinking those things. Um uh, to, to, it, it wasn't then a huge surprise to find, um, you know, some of those some of those kilograms piling on. Um, but then the kind of the the, the, the kind of cycle of realization kicks in, and uh, actually uh, you figure out that um, it's much better to um, not put on weight if you want to um, have an active, uh, I guess, uh, love life at university. So, but and then the good news is the good news is the good news is as a nineteen year old or whatever, it's actually not that difficult to, to then lose it again, uh, as you also discover. Um, and I wasn't alone on being on going through that cycle. So um, I had a lot more fun in my, in my second and third year, but a lot more curly fries in my first. Um, I think that the, the serious, in the serious context of this is, is kind of the mental health crisis um, uh, at, uh, at university. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's very tempting to, uh, when you have a big, uh, you know, you suddenly kind of break for freedom, particularly if we're talking about, you know, full-time undergraduates and the boarding school model uh, to kind of go a bit crazy. If you've been living at home uh, and, you know, your parents are largely responsible for what you're eating, all of a sudden, you know, as I say, you can just eat curly fries and then, then you do. That's a sort of, you know, that's a learning curve. Some people have to go on. Um, I guess the other issue is this this debate about kind of in loco parentis and, um, you know, what, what extent that universities really do have a responsibility um, to universities and things like, the diet of students who are also grown ups, adults, um, by any by any uh, uh, by any definition of the word, uh, and um, on paper at least are able to um, make the, the decisions that are right for them. Um, but I think that um, it rings true in many ways. Well, as as um, as as the oldest person in this room by by some margin, I, I think there's a, a hidden benefit for this. So uh, going to the 25th anniversary uh, of everybody from university a few years ago, you know, the advantage is we, without fail, looked better now than we did when we were at university. So I, I think that's a really positive thing. You can look back at that 80s perm, the extra five kilograms, the, you know, the raw skirts, the leg warmers. I'm really showing my age now. And, you know, you go, God damn, you know, I, yeah, we, we, we've, we've all come on and developed. So even from that, that reference point, I think it's good. Now, on a serious note... Um, look, at, I mean, you know, again, it's a societal issue, isn't it? You look at the recommendations and it's, you know, increase the availability of healthy food choices, educate, consume. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, we, we all need to do this in our, in our day-to-day life, don't we? It's, um, it's not a university issue, it's a societal issue. And, you know, parents need to, you know, show their kids how to boil an egg. And I, I'm going to challenge the premise of the um, article because I did, I did, I did um, read it and, and I think it made a couple of leaps. I mean, it sort of said, A, that students are putting on uh, you know this four kilograms of, of weight fine but then it just completely made the leap and said oh it's unhealthy eating and I'm not really sure whether that's a an accurate measure of health um, by many standards um, and I think it was actually interesting at the the 
Secret Life of Students uh, wonky event recently in terms of students, especially the, the generation that's coming into university now. Um, we know that they are much more conscious about their mental health. We know they're more conscious about their physical health as well. Um, and um, I'm going to be a bit, you know, controversial out then. How much of this is down to students, you know, just eating better? How much is it down to students putting on weight because they are putting on more muscle in terms of going to the gym? Or, um, and, you know, weight is not really, doesn't necessarily correlate with health um, in, in a very simplistic sense. And I think... Um, I think it's, you know, from my own personal experience, seeing, you know, lots of students are, are you know, go to the gym, often for the first time when they go to university, they've got access to a lot more. Um, their social media as well is actually a, a way for students to find out more about different regimes, different, whether that's exercise regimes or different food regimes as well. So I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that um, this necessarily is a, is a, is a good <laughs> metric for judging the health of students, which I think is slightly more important than just the, the weight. And, and also students are, you know, going to university at sort of 18, they're still growing, they've still got, you know, um, they still haven't sort of finished their development. So I think that's also quite important to take into consideration. So that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks to Justine, to Amate and to Mark and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, stay active. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.